And Heavenly Father, please open your word to us as we study it together now. Please send your Holy Spirit to enlighten us. And would you unify us as one body under one head, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Happy New Year, Incarnation. Uh, This is our very first gathering of 2024. I'm excited to be with you for this new year. I I feel really good about this year. Very excited about it. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm looking forward to Core Sunday lunch um, next week. Um, We had an awesome leader gathering yesterday in the Fellowship Hall. And for those of you who weren't there, you have many excellent leaders. And I have uh, lots of great news to share with you next week at Core Sunday. Um, Before I begin my sermon, I just want to introduce to you one of your leaders um, sitting here vested in the back row is the Reverend Dr. Jeff Trossel. Uh, Jeff and his wife Donna have been worshipping here with us at Incarnation for about six months, um, and uh, they are kind of retired, semi-retired, but uh, in my hour of need, Jeff's been willing to uh, vest and uh, put on his collar, and he's going to come and celebrate for us today. Um, He's a very wise and learned man, great person to have uh, with us right now. Please, if you haven't met him before, please do meet Jeff and his wife Donna today. Um, So staying here in this present moment, before we think about the future, um, we are going to kick off with some more good news today. Uh, We're going to kick off with the very best news, which is the gospel. And uh, we're going to zoom in on the very high point of the gospel, which is love. The love of God for us and the love that we get to participate in spreading. Love, we know, is the best news in the world, and it's the core of our Christian faith. And love is, on the one hand, a very simple and obvious thing that everybody gets intuitively. But on the other hand, it's a very deep and complex and wonderful thing that we never fully understand, never get tired of talking about it. And uh, as we looked in our uh, gospel reading today, Jesus has some new lessons for us about love. Um, So we're going to enter for the third and final season into our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We've got 15 more sermons in John to take us through the end of John's Gospel by mid-April. So today we're back in John chapter 15. Please, let's turn there now, page 902. We're in John chapter 15. 902, John 15 and verse 12. And we find these amazing words of Jesus where he says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. These are wonderful words. I'm sure we know them well. I want to think about them again today fresh. Uh, by comparing them to uh, three more modern statements or declarations that we hear about love. Uh, The first one comes from the singer-songwriter John Mayer, who said, love is a verb, right? Uh, The second one comes from the the posters that you see at pride parades that say, love wins. And then the third message is a bit older. It comes from the movie Casablanca, where Dooley Wilson sang, the world will always welcome lovers. So we've got the messages that love is a verb, love wins, and the world will always welcome lovers. And I want to evaluate those in light of what Jesus says in John 15. So uh, first, love is a verb. Uh, That was the title of one of John Mayer's songs in his 2012 album, Born and Raised. And I'll give you a sample of the lyrics if you haven't heard the song. 
He's saying, love is a verb, it ain't a thing, it's not something you own, it's not something you scream. When you show me love, I don't need your words, yeah, love ain't a thing, love is a verb. Love ain't a crutch, it ain't an excuse, no, you can't get through on just a pile of IOUs. Love ain't a drug, despite what you've heard, love ain't a thing, love is a verb. So you've got to show me, 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 <laughs> that love is a verb. All right, now, I don't want to press too deeply into what John Mayer might have meant by show me, show me, show me, show me. Um, but the song does make its overall point pretty clear that love's not really about feelings. Love is about actions. Love is a verb. And uh, John Mayer is half right, isn't he? Uh, because if we let the Bible define love for us, and I think we should, then most of the time, love is a verb. I mean, literally, grammatically, a verb. Uh, like here in John 15, verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love. Agapete, verb. Present, active, subjunctive, second person plural. One another, as I have loved you. Agapesa, verb. Aorist, active, indicative, first person singular. So love is literally a verb. Um, and in the Greek tenses here, Jesus commands his followers corporately to love in a present ongoing way in the same way as he has singularly loved them in a perfect completed way. But John Mayer is only half right in his song because love is also a noun. That would make a less good song, love is a noun. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is also true. So for example, uh, in the great chapter about love that we read at all the weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, it treats love as a noun all the way through. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Uh, uh, that's uh, agapain. Uh, noun, accusative, singular, feminine. And it goes all the way down to now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, agape. Noun, nominative, singular, feminine. So here, love is a thing. And indeed, it's a very heavy, solid, eternal thing. So in the Bible, love is a verb, and it's also a noun. Both a thing you do and a thing you have. Both a thing you can experience through acts of love, but also a thing you can experience merely by its own presence. And in that way, I'm not sure if I can think of anything else that's exactly like love. Of course, there are plenty of other words that can be used grammatically, both as nouns and verbs, like drink, walk, text, and mouthwash. Um, but I mean, is there another thing that's comparable to love where the quality of doing it as an act and of having it as a thing are as distinct, as individually discernible, and yet as mutually interconnected? The thing that love reminds me most of is light, which is mysteriously both a wave and a particle. So it's true that the feelings without the actions are not really love, as John Mayer says. But it's also true that the actions without the presence of the thing itself are not really love either. Uh, the Bible has a strong challenge for the Christian who comes to church on Sunday, weeps through the worship music, takes copious notes on the sermon, and then goes home and curses his parents, ignores the poor, and gets angry rants, gets into angry rants online. But on the other hand, the Bible has a similarly strong challenge for the Christian who gets up every day to feed and clothe the poor, gives half of his money to charity and runs a soup kitchen, but who never sings or prays or reads the Bible and avoids the worship of the assembly. 
One is love in feelings only. The other is love in actions only. And neither is biblical love. So John riffs on Jesus' command in his first letter, and he writes in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And in that passage, we see all through what John says, the union of love, the action, with love, the thing. It's got the verb and the noun together. So then, how do we put Jesus' command into practice to love one another? I think we can all imagine the ideal. We can imagine some great Christian hero who gets up in the morning with a great big heart on fire with love and goes about her workday smiling and laughing and spreading that love around, caring for people, listening to people, rolling up her sleeves whenever she finds someone in need. I think we can imagine what that person looks like. And then we look at ourselves and, oh dear, uh, not the same at all. Uh, what if our hearts are not large or strong, or on fire with love? And what if our efforts to love other people seem puny, half-hearted, and hypocritical? Well, friend, join the club. I'm a card-carrying member myself. The club of people who are not there yet. And here's what the Bible tells us to do. First, we've all got to receive love. We've got to receive God's love. God the Father loves us. God the Son died for us. He died for us on the cross to save us. We need to receive that, believe it, sit in quiet and think about it. Let it swell our hearts. We can only love out of the love that we have received. Second, we let the Holy Spirit grow love in us. Love is the very first fruit of the Holy Spirit. He makes it grow in us. Let him do his work and pray for more of it. But then third, I want to recommend that we try to keep our emotions and our actions of love roughly in step together. One is always going to be a little bit ahead of the other, and that's okay. But try not to let one get too much ahead of the other. Bring the other along. So if your heart is sluggish, maybe start with a little bit of obedience. Do the action of love as Jesus commands you. Deny yourself and serve someone else. Don't worry if the action is a little bit beyond the feeling you have. It's not hypocritical, it's obedient. Do the action first and let the feeling catch up. Pretty often, feelings of love follow actions of love. And once the feeling catches up a bit, we can then take another step forward with an even bigger action. Or on the other hand, if your heart is already full of God's love, turn that fullness into serving someone. Don't let your heart get too far ahead of your actions. Wondering who to love or what to do? I'll let the Lord speak to you and give you those answers himself. But I just want to say that we usually need to start close to home. Family, friends, neighbors, colleagues at work. And Christian love is cross-shaped, self-sacrificial. We lay down our lives for our friends, and that means the action costs us something. All right, now we're going to talk about cultural statement number two, love wins. 
You can't have avoided seeing this printed on black and yellow posters somewhere in the past five years. It's a big LGBTQ slogan. It's on flags at pride parades, posters outside Unitarian churches. And when we see this slogan, love wins, what we take it to mean usually is that gay relationships and gay marriage have love on their side and will win against homophobia and conservative prejudice. Love wins. And who's not in favor of love, right? Love is the ultimate good. Don't Christians believe that all things should be done in love? Then how can an action that's motivated by love be considered wrong? What higher value than love can be brought in to judge it? Love always wins. And just like with the John Mayer statement, love is a verb, this one again is at least half right, and it's undeniably provocative and powerful. Because if we think about the Bible as a whole, we might summarize its entire sweeping message as love wins. Uh, John tells us in 1 John that God himself is love, and he tells us in his gospel that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and that son was successful in rescuing the world, so love won. In Revelation, the end of the story, the big final message is that God wins, and God is love, so love wins. Uh, and also Paul says of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. So if love surpasses and outlasts all things, doesn't love win? The pride poster is at least half true, and it proclaims a message that should cause all our hearts to rejoice. It's a very good thing that love wins that it defeats hatred and violence and death in the end and ushers in a new era of unity and joy and peace. So then, what's wrong with putting it on a pride poster? Where is the error? Why is that only half the truth? And there might be several different ways to answer that question, but to me the main problem comes from our own English language. Because in English we only have one word for love, when the Greek world, <clears throat> in, in which both the New Testament and the great ancient philosophers lived, had four. Um, maybe you've encountered these before through C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Four Loves. And they are in Greek, storge, eros, phileo, and agape. <clears throat> so storge is natural love. It's like the love between members of a family. It's the most simple and basic kind of human affection. It's still love, but it's the lowest form of love. The Bible only uses storge twice, and only in the negative, to criticize people who are loveless, who don't even have natural love. They don't even have storge. The next up on the list is eros, which is romantic and sexual love. Eros is passionate and joyful, a definite step up from simple storge. The Greek word eros gives us our English word erotic. But our word erotic has become crass and now lacks the joy and romance elements that are present in eros. Eros is a beautiful form of love, much to be celebrated. Moving on up the list is phileo, which is strong friend love. Our city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, and phileo is definitely a superior love to eros, both in biblical and ancient Greek thought. In the Bible, <clears throat> wives are commanded in the book of Titus as Christians to have phileo love for their husbands. Now, it hopefully goes without saying that those wives already had storge and eros loves for their husband. 
So this is a Christian call to a higher standard of love, phileo. Similarly, in John 15, verse 13, Jesus says that the greatest love is when someone lays down his life for his friends. That word friends is the noun form of phileo. And Jesus didn't make this up, actually. He's quoting from Aristotle when he says this. In Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle says, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. Jesus is agreeing with Aristotle. Yes, laying down your own life shows the greatest love. Phileo was the greatest kind of love that Aristotle knew, much greater than eros or storge. But Jesus introduced an even greater form of love, which was agape. Most of the time, the New Testament talks about love, it's the word agape. And there's a good chance that Jesus kind of invented this word. We don't have prior re records of it being used in this way in Koine Greek. Jesus needed a new word for the love of God, a love that was greater than anyone in the world had ever imagined, an eternal humble, completely unselfish, self-giving, and self-forgetful kind of love. Agape. That's what the Bible wants to sing about. And it's what we've all received from the Father, and it's what Jesus commands of us, what the Spirit is writing into us, this new, wondrous, superhuman kind of love. And of course, it can't happen without God himself without our connection to God himself and our obedience, our allegiance to his ways. We've seen this a dozen times before in John's gospel, but here it is again in verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends, phileo, if you do what I command you. Now the problem then comes in our language, because we translate all four of those words, love, and we make no distinction. <clears throat> so when it comes to the pride poster where it says love wins, we need to ask the poster, which love do you mean? What the LGBTQ community really means is that eros wins, right? Romantic and sexual love. But when we've come to that point, it is not true. Eros is a fine thing, but there are two loves that are greater. Phileo beats eros, and agape beats them both. Not, of course, that agape does away with phileo or eros. They're both good and excellent forms of love. Both are commanded in the Bible. But neither can stand up against agape. The love of God rooted in the righteous way of God, that is the love that wins. And gay pride pits eros against agape. It says that a human definition of romantic love, contrary to God's law, should be allowed to triumph over God's loving and creative purposes. So while it might be motivated by a genuine desire for human protection, freedom, and flourishing, it is not good. It's misguided and mistaken, and it will not win. Agape wins. It is good news from heaven for all people. But thank you, Pride Poster, for helping us to understand the Bible better. <coughs> now, I want you to think about the third statement, which comes from Dooley Wilson. The world will always welcome lovers. And this comes from a song in the famous 1942 movie, Casablanca. You've probably heard it. <coughs> you must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. Play it again, Sam. Now, 
this is clearly singing about Eros and not Agape. But I really love that line, the world will always welcome lovers. It sounds self-evident. That's exactly what we'd expect to be true of the world. And it's precisely the opposite of what Jesus says is going to happen. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, Jesus says, the world will not always welcome lovers. The world will rarely welcome lovers. Jesus was history's greatest lover and one of its most hated people, rejected wherever he went, betrayed, crucified. Do not think that Jesus was some great charismatic leader who was always surrounded by thousands of adoring followers. He does have thousands of followers now, a little over two billion of them, but not then. And he was charismatic. He did preach to thousands of people. He was sought out wherever he went for healings. But as he continued to preach the kingdom and tell the truth, people began to abandon him. Jesus was left with just one disciple standing at the cross while he died, and just 120 people willing to stand up for him after his resurrection. The world did not welcome him, who was the head and source of all love. Now, for us, we tend to go through life expecting it to follow a form of the golden rule that kind people receive kindness back. A smile gets a smile. Put love in, get love out. Bad things don't happen to good people, <coughs> which is <coughs> the way that we all want it to be, and arguably, it's the way that it should be, and maybe how it works out sometimes on a superficial level. But at a deep foundational level, it's just not true. And the opposite is true. The people who bring the best into the world should expect the worst treatment. The world does not welcome lovers. Not agape lovers, anyway. In verse 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a really important truth for us to grasp because it's going to change the way that we relate to the non-Christian world and probably to the Christian world too. If you're anything like me, <clears throat> then you want to be cool. And you want your Christianity to be cool. You want to say to the world, hey, I'm not some weirdo. I'm a normal person. My faith is thoughtful and reasonable. It's based on solid facts and evidence. I haven't thrown my brain in the garbage can. I'm not a hateful bigot or a judgmental hypocrite. I recognize my own sins and shortcomings. I'm humble about them, and I don't call out other people. I'm doing my best to serve God honestly, to love my neighbor, care for the planet, serve the poor in my city. I'm doing my best. Don't lump me in with those other Christians in the past who've made such a mess of following Jesus. I'm different, and my church is different. And a lot of us do this, don't we? We want to present this kind of face to our friends. I know I do it. Uh, maybe it's okay. Maybe it helps bridge the gap for people and bring them closer to Jesus. So it's not the worst thing in the world. But I really want us to be careful of this. Because here's what Jesus says. If you love the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then the world is going to hate you. It doesn't matter how much you try to play it cool. If you're a serious disciple, you're going to get called a bigot and a judgmental hypocrite, no matter what you do. Spinning the narrative isn't going to help, and it's not what we're called to do. Haters going to hate, 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 hate. <laughs> Is that in the Bible? I seem to remember somebody saying that. Yeah. Uh, and while we're trying to be cool, we're in danger of some real disobedience, aren't we? Okay, so first, we might judge and criticize our Christian brothers and sisters in other denominations or from other times in history. We might take the world's side against them. Because think about it. If the world hated Jesus, 
and it did and still does, was it right? Does the world work hard to understand him or tell the truth about him? Does the world work hard to understand you or tell the truth about you? Do you think there might just be a chance that the scorn and contempt you hear from the world about other Christians in other times and places might not be the whole story? A chance that far more churches and Christians in them are honest and humble and faithful like we are and not the pack of proud, bigoted monsters the world makes them out to be? I would think, given what Jesus says here, that we would be wise to take the world's verdict on the wider church with a large grain of salt and think about Christians we don't know with charitable assumptions rather than suspicion or judgment. The second danger of trying to be cool is that we might agree with the world that organized religion is bad or dangerous and choose to be disciples with no community, Christians without a church. Is this another form of trying to be cool Christians? distancing ourselves from church altogether, or being a trendy, disaffiliated church, independent, non-denominational? Is that perhaps another way of trying to say cool, different from all those other slobs? Nothing could be more like the world and less like Jesus than a scornful view of his global church. Of course she's far from perfect, but she is beloved by God and hated by the world, just like her Lord was. I think we could all do with treating the world's scorn with a lot more suspicion. And then a third danger of trying to be cool is that we'll just be plain disobedient. Because Jesus says, share the good news about me, but we won't because it's not cool. That's what angry megaphone street preachers do, and we're different. So we end up disobeying his direct command. Jesus says, tell the truth all the time, but we won't because it's not cool. We'll speak up when it's socially safe or popular, like when we're speaking up against racism or injustice, but we'll stay quiet when it comes to controversial subjects like cohabitation or transgenderism. Or worse, we'll just agree with the crowd against the word of God. Jesus promises that all who deny him will be denied by him on the last day. So brothers and sisters, how about a new approach? How about we stop caring whether our Christianity looks good in the eyes of the world and start caring about whether it's actually faithful to our Lord Jesus, to his word, to his whole word? and to his example. The world is going to hate us if we're doing it right. And that's okay. We'll get called all kinds of terrible names, but when we're hated, we keep loving. We never return slander for slander or injury for injury. When reviled, we bless. And because of all this, it makes sense for us to offer our best love to the church. I don't mean that we circle the wagons or hide in a spiritual enclave, but I do suggest that we focus our special love and care for our Christian community. Because if the words of Jesus are true, and they are, then the people in this room are certainly putting out much more into the world than they are getting back. You are all fighting a hard battle, and you're gaining a poor return for a good investment. Jesus sees you, church, he loves you the most. He's glad that he died for you, and he'd do it again, all over again, if he had to. So, since we have been loved with eternal agape love, let us love one another as our Lord commanded. Amen. <laughs>